Welcome to The Tea Room, I'm Wendy John. Before you grab a cuppa, I've got an announcement. The Tea Room podcast is moving. In just a few weeks' time, we will rebrand as The Medical Republic Podcast. Super easy to find us. Just type The Medical Republic into Apple Podcasts or Spotify, etc. We'll come up. We'll have a snazzy new format, bringing you the latest clinical research, new hacks for running your clinic, and investigations into stories that really matter to GPs. The Medical Republic Podcast. We'll see you there. We engage the GPs very early on from the moment we receive the referrals. The patients are also kept updated on the length of the wait list, when they could expect their appointments to be. And we also send them out resources specifically around self-rehabilitation. That's Dr. Angela Mulga from South Australia's Long COVID Clinic based in Central Adelaide Local Health Network. She's one of our guests today in the Tea Room. Now, we've reached a small milestone with our long COVID coverage here at the Tea Room. This is our 10th podcast episode in our long COVID special series. I have to admit that when I started it over a year ago, I did hope there'd be more treatment options a year later, but alas, no. Nevertheless, there have been some steps forward with more long COVID clinics opening across the nation, more international and national research, and more resources for GPs and patients to understand the long road to long COVID recovery. We're going to see inside one of those long COVID clinics today in South Australia. But before we do, the Parliamentary Inquiry on Long COVID has recently released its report. And I asked fellow medical journalist Kate Swinnell how GPs line up in the Long COVID Inquiry report. Well, the good news is that they get a whole recommendation to themselves, which is great. The committees obviously acknowledge that GPs are the ones doing most of the care for people with long COVID as an acknowledgement that they're important and that they should be supported and educated to provide the care that patients need. There's also talk about that education being part of continuing professional development and also a change to the MBS numbers for chronic disease management. That needs to be reviewed and clearly GPs would be supportive of that because it means they get remunerated best. Unlike in the USA or Denmark, for example, we can't collect the data because we don't have interoperability between healthcare systems. We can't even collect all the data just from GPs because different clinics use different systems and they don't talk to each other. And because we don't have the data to inform funding, the care of long COVID patients has largely fallen squarely on the lap of GPs. It has. And and those GPs, unfortunately, are relying on data from other countries. You know, I was talking to Mark Morgan, Professor Mark Morgan from the RACGP, after there was some new research came out of the US, which was looking at one-year outcomes for people with long COVID. And Mark's point was, you know, we have a completely different set of variants. We have a completely different vaccination rollout policy. So we have to be very careful using those data from overseas. And what we really need is data from Australia. And that's hard to get. You need political will, you need public messaging, and you need resourcing of GP academics. The report put out a figure on how much would be required to implement its recommendations. That funding is going to be allegedly a further $50 million from the Medical Research Future Fund. They call that an initial response. So with luck, there's going to be more down the track. But they need to fund outreach long COVID clinics, particularly in rural and regional areas. They need to fund better telehealth and and other GP resources, including the CPD that we've talked about and and the, the online resources for GPs to use. There's also mental health support needed. 
And it needs to be provided in an appropriate amount of time and equitably, you know, how do you get that to people out in the regions? And a regular review of those issues should be part of GP management. But again, that's all about remunerating the GPs so that they can put the time in to do that. And again, we don't know what all the related mental health impacts are for long COVID. So that's where research needs to go as well. I asked Kate, how has the RACGP responded? They've been pretty positive about it. They are happy that the the role of GPs has been recognised. And they also have pointed out that these recommendations reflect what the RACGP has already called for and has been calling for for a long time, particularly about data collection and research. They also want to see more. And this brings us to the National Clinical Evidence Task Force, which has been interestingly treated in the recommendations of the report. The task force developed living guidelines and has been providing up-to-date information for GPs and other, other doctors ever since the pandemic really set in. And they've been funded by the federal government right up until December of last year when the federal government said, no, that's it, you're not having any more. And that was a weird decision. And what the report has done is recommend that living guidelines be developed So that's sort of an acknowledgement, I suspect, that perhaps the task force and the living guidelines need to be refunded. And the RACGP has called for that to happen and that it's just something that needs to be supported so that GPs have the access to the best, most up-to-date information. Kate Swinnell says the website's still there, the guidelines are still there, the task force still has people affiliated with it. We just don't know the rationale as to why it's not being continued. It would be something that could be implemented rather quickly, one might think. I mean, the RACGP was also disappointed that there were no recommendations for immediate measures. And that comes down to Medicare rebates again. Uh, you know, there's not, it's a complex chronic condition. It needs more time from the GP, but the current patient rebates penalise long, long consult- consultations. We've known that. And that's not just a long COVID problem, that's an everything problem. So the college did did say that they were disappointed that that hadn't been tackled, but I'm not sure we really expected it to. I can only imagine that if the MBS assigned an item number to long COVID, it could be a precedent for other chronic disease, but item numbers for chronic disease is something also discussed in the Strengthening Medicare Task Force report. Maybe the two reports could get together and join forces. There were a couple of other really interesting points in the long COVID inquiry report. The report basically makes an assumption that the Centre for Disease Control is going to get up and running because it's it's recommending that a, a CDC be, be the home for a single COVID-19 database. Uh, and that makes sense. You know, you're talking about interoperability. We need a national, a, a centralised database. We need an overseeing body to capture the data, not just on infect, in infections, but on complications, hospitalisations, deaths and recurrent reinfections as well as long COVID. So yeah, they they do talk a lot about that. They talk about collecting data across jurisdictions. Okay. I won't get on my game again about interoperability between healthcare systems. There were some other interesting recommendations. They've recommended exploring the use of artificial intelligence, self-managed care platforms, and data linkage, which obviously is, you know, Good old federation stuffs us at every at every at every point in that question. Okay, I have to say it. Interoperability, it matters. They want a nationally coordinated research program, again led by a CDC, 
And they're also talking about expanding the list of eligibility for antivirals. They also talk about clean air. Uh, you know, there, there was a clean air summit in Canberra not so long ago, and I think recommendation seven of the report calls for the establishment of a multidisciplinary advisory body to oversee the impact of poor air quality and ventilation on the economy. And apparently the economy is the way we decide <laughs> our public health settings these days. So, you know, that, that can be seen as a win for clean air advocates, I think. Whether that comes to anything when the government acts on the report is another matter. If the government does act on the report, it will be probably some time before the outcomes are implemented. In the meantime, the Medical Republic is committed to equipping GPs and other doctors with the knowledge and tools for treating long COVID patients. We're holding a live webinar in a couple of weeks, Tuesday the 23rd of May 2023 at 6.30pm. It's called Long COVID in Practice and basically it's everything you've ever wanted to know about treating long COVID but didn't have time to ask. Now, the expert panel includes doctors treating long COVID in family practices, leaders of tertiary care teams and clinical researchers, public health specialists. It's an interactive webinar, so you'll be able to ask the panel questions. They're Australia's top long COVID clinicians and researchers. You can ask them everything from diagnostics and assessment to guidelines, billing and item numbers, and if you're keen, how to create a long COVID clinic in a community practice. To register, head to the Medical Republic website or Google Medical Republic Long COVID Webinar. I look forward to seeing you there. But now, let's get back to the podcast. It's time to get an insider's view of a tertiary long COVID clinic in South Australia. Many patients who are seen in our clinic have multiple undifferentiated symptoms. They are complex and they will have at least three active issues with significant impairments. The most commonly reported symptoms that we're seeing that are impacting their function are breathing, fatigue, the cognitive impairment or brain fog, chest pain and mental health issues. That's Dr. Angela Molga. She's a clinical pharmacologist at Royal Adelaide Hospital, a geriatrician at the Northern Adelaide Health Network, Associate Lecturer at the University of Adelaide and Dr Molga also works in the Long COVID Clinic based in Central Adelaide Local Health Network or Carlin. The clinics are based at the Royal Adelaide Hospital and the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in South Australia. Now I asked Dr Molga if there was anything that surprised her since they started the South Australian Long COVID Clinic in 2021. Look, the young age of people affected and the direct impact that it's had on their social and work roles has been eye-opening for me. We know that long COVID disproportionately affects those of greater socioeconomic disadvantage, and our concern is that this is going to further add to health inequities. They lose wages through reduced capacity or inability to return to work, as well as businesses suffer through loss of workforce adding to shortages seen nationwide. To back it up with numbers, the average age of the patients who were seen in our clinic in a couple of months last year was 47 years old. These were previously healthy people, little contact with the healthcare system, but now have multiple chronic issues. They have to change their lifestyle significantly, and then this also impacts their mental health. They are very highly motivated and they do large amounts of research in their own time, which is great. They've had close to 500 referrals so far and they've seen nearly 250 of those patients. The other 250, well, there's a thorough triage, which 
also relies on GP assessment and patient-reported outcome measures. Some patients get referred straight on to rehabilitation or other services. And Dr Mulga said that for many other cases, the clinic can assist the GP in managing the patient rather than bringing them into the clinic. So, for example, their only complaint is shortness of breath, then they can go and see the respective specialty, depending on the information that's provided in the referral or information that we gather after speaking to the patient and the GP. So it really is very individual for each case and it does take a bit of time to do this, but we believe that it does provide the most patient-centered approach. We do bear in mind that these appointments can be quite taxing on people with long COVID because they're already fatigued to begin with. And then to bring them in for an appointment is a big ask. So we try to make sure that we are valuing their time by providing them with the right care at the right time. So what diagnostics or assessments does a GP need to provide for the referral? It's important to exclude alternative explanations for the symptoms that patients are reporting. For example, if they've got fatigue, have they been checked for iron deficiency? Have they been checked for other things that could be contributing to that fatigue that could be easily fixed with their general practitioner? So those are the things that we ask GPs to include. There are multiple tools that GPs can use, but the Long COVID Clinic have streamlined this for GPs in South Australia. Now, the South Australian Long COVID Model of Care has been published by the South Australian Clinical Advisory Group and it's available to all South Australian clinicians through Health Pathways. To speed things up, the State Health Department have issued GPs generic logins to be able to access the Long COVID Pathways. It includes resources that add to the normal assessments a GP would undertake. Additionally, what we are, what we would really like to see is the level of functional impairment that this has on the patient. So that helps us triage the severity and the complexity of the referral. For someone who was previously healthy to now be bed bound, that really raises their complexity, but also the urgency by which they need to be seen. Ah, yes, patient reported outcome measures. Although there is a clinic in CellDX who say they can diagnose long COVID through a blood test, most national and state guidelines rely heavily on the patient's own assessment of how they're doing. There are specific long COVID screening tools or patient-reported outcome measures that have been used to determine functional impairment, and one of them is the post-COVID functional scale, which is a very simple tick box system, and that is also quite helpful in determining or quantifying the level of impairment that patients have. The post-COVID functional scale is also used to track patients' recovery or improvement. So the post-COVID functional scale, in addition to the C19 YRS, which was developed in the UK, are two validated tools in this patient cohort to track their recovery. And that is what we're doing in the registry. We are checking these patient-reported outcome measures at entry into the clinic, and we are monitoring it over time. The registry that Dr Mulga refers to is one of the outcomes of a collaboration between the Carlin Nocal Health Network at the University of Melbourne and SA Pathology. The actual long COVID clinic supported by Carlin is a multidisciplinary team. We've got medical staff, nursing, pharmacists and allies. 
health. So being the major tertiary centre in South Australia, we've also got some quaternary services. And so some of these services are involved in assisting patients to return to work and or life roles. And these include respiratory, autonomic evaluation and management, fatigue assessment and rehabilitation. Many patients who are seen in our clinic have multiple undifferentiated symptoms. They are complex and they will have at least three active issues with significant impairments. The most commonly reported symptoms that we're seeing that are impacting their function are breathing, fatigue, the cognitive impairment or brain fog, chest pain and mental health issues. So the causes, Wendy, are frequently multifactorial. And the kind of treatment a patient gets is similarly multifaceted. So, for example, someone who came in with those complaints, we might give them an assessment of dysautonomia with post-viral dysexecutive syndrome compounded by anxiety and depression. So having access to multiple specialists with expertise in their particular areas for timely advice is a key part of our clinic model to minimize delays in care and recovery. We're also seeing an increase in chronic conditions such as diabetes and cardiovascular events, and these will be new diagnoses. So more research is required to be able to make more recommendations. So what happens when the clinic deems the patient as being able to be best managed by their GP? What's the process? We engage the GPs very early on from the moment we receive the referrals. The patients are also kept updated on the length of the wait list, when they could expect their appointments to be, and we also send them out resources specifically around self-rehabilitation. So a lot of the patients who come to our clinic have not seen these resources before, and so we make sure that we not only send it to them, but we also send it to their general practitioners as a, as a way of hopefully disseminating it to their wider patient population. So when the patients come into the clinic, we make sure that the evaluation is quite comprehensive and holistic. And once their evaluation is complete with the stable management plan, then we discharge them back to their GP with a comprehensive care plan to guide ongoing management. So our clinic plays a role not only in diagnosing, but also the stewardship of resources such as imaging and therapeutics or medicines to avoid things that could potentially cause more harm than benefit. Dr Mulga said there is no dedicated pathway for rural or regional patients yet and that given the nature of long COVID, referred patients need to be seen face-to-face. However, follow-up treatment can be done via telehealth along with the patient's GP. I was curious, though, about the number of times an average patient has to attend the clinic in person. It's quite unique and individual to each patient. Some patients have more complex needs than others. They might require more appointments than others. For some patients, it can be done in one to two episodes. However, for the majority, we are finding that they need to be seen at least two to three times before they are stable enough to be discharged back to their GP with a clear and comprehensive care plan. Earlier in this episode, we spoke about the long COVID parliamentary inquiry report and heard about the implications for GPs. I wondered what a long COVID clinic felt was particularly important in the report. So the committee published nine recommendations and a couple of pertinent ones is that funding be provided in partnership with state health departments for selected public hospitals to develop multidisciplinary long COVID clinics, but also that these clinics should be linked to nationally consistent referral guidelines 
uh, for screening patients with challenging long COVID complications. They also recommended developing evidence-based living guidelines for diagnosis and treatment, incorporating the tiered care, including referral pathways, and to do this in partnership with patients with lived experience. They also recommended that uh, funding be provided for research, and this is key to being able to manage long COVID in long term. Dr. Mulga said that they know that between 3 and 5% of COVID patients will develop long COVID, which as a condition does tend to fluctuate, but also shows incremental improvement in most patients. The consensus of opinion seems to be that patients take about 9 to 12 months to recover. But as the syndrome is emerging, it is really hard to say how long it will take patients to return to their pre-COVID levels of function and overall health. So we can reflect on international data and research. However, the challenge is that the research available out there is frequently low quality and not relevant to Australia's context of high vaccination rates and recent milder variants. So we really need locally based research to be able to answer those questions. Lack of research seems to be hindering the visibility of recovery rates, but it also has other impacts. Like every other state, there have been very limited changes to treatment. So we released the statewide model of care in December last year. And in the last few months, we have had, we've made some incremental changes, for example, in the referral form. So that made it easier for GPs to include all the information required to be able to triage patients and reduce the amount of to and fro. It also guided GPs on things that they could do before referring the patients on to us and making information available. Additionally, on our Carl and Long COVID website, we have resources available for patients, so they don't need to wait to see their GP to be able to go and find these resources and start their self-management themselves. And this is where some of that $50 million recommended in the Long COVID Inquiry Report would come in handy. Funding for research. Any change that we make, we need to ensure that it reflects best current evidence and best practice. The models of care will continue to evolve as the evidence base grows. So it is quite important that we have the bodies set up as recommended by the parliamentary inquiry, a national body to look into research, to establish living guidelines, to make sure that we are delivering the best health care to patients with long COVID as possible. That was Dr Angela Molga from South Australia's Long COVID Clinic at Central Adelaide Local Health Network. Earlier, we heard from medical journalist Kate Swinnell. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the tea room. And a quick reminder, the Tea Room is rebranding to the Medical Republic podcast. Super easy to find us. Just type the Medical Republic into Apple Podcasts or Spotify, etc., and we'll come up. Thanks for tuning in.